now will be forever the myth. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. Little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you'd like to become a Patreon sponsor for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, go to our official website, bodybuildinglegendsshow.com, and in the upper right-hand corner, you will see a link to becoming a Patreon donor. All right, welcome, everybody, to the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding, and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen, and on today's show, we have a very special interview with head judge Steve Weinberger. Steve has been a head judge for the MPC and the IFBB for many years, many decades, actually, and his history in bodybuilding goes way back. And so on today's show, we're going to talk to Steve about how he got involved in the sport of bodybuilding. He owns one of the biggest gyms in the country with his former wife, Bev Francis. It's called Bev's Gym out in New York. And Steve was actually involved in the making of Pumping Iron 2, which was way back in 1983. So we're going to talk to Steve about all of that in our upcoming interview. And then after our interview with Steve, I'm going to read an article from the November 1985 issue of Flex Magazine about Bev Francis. And it's called Here's Bev. And it was written by Rick Wayne. And it is a long article, but it talks about Bev coming over to America from Australia and also about the making of Pumping Iron 2. And Steve is mentioned quite prominently in this article as well. So that will be right after our interview with Steve Weinberg. All right. What else is going on, guys? It's been a couple of weeks since we've done the podcast. A lot's been going on. This was a big weekend in Tampa. We had the Tampa Pro out here in Tampa from August. I believe it started on the 3rd. It started on Thursday until the 5th. Very, very big show. Uh, Tim Gardner, the promoter, has been promoting this competition, I think, for like 16 years now. And Tim has all of the professional events over the weekend, I think he is the only pro show, except for, of course, from Mr. Olympia, that has all of the pro shows, all of the pro at his contest. So it was a very, very big weekend, a lot of great competition. I was there all three days. So thanks to Tim for having me out there. Powerhouse Gym, Athletic Club, where I go to, they were one of the big sponsors of the contest. It was a great show. Hunter Labrada, Lee Labrada's son, won his second Tampa Pro. I believe he won it like three years ago as well. It was the best Hunter ever looked. He looked amazing. So we are looking forward to seeing him at the Olympia. I think he's got a really good shot at making the top five, maybe even the top three. This was definitely the best he ever looked. He had a really disappointing year last year where he only placed seventh in the Olympia. But that seemed to really, really motivate him. I actually got to talk to Lee today. I was at the hotel and I ran into him. So I talked to him for about a half hour. Great guy, of course, Lee Labrada, one of the best professional bodybuilders we've ever had, a great ambassador of the sport. And uh, he was saying some, he was telling Hunter that your career in bodybuilding does not go in a linear fashion. You know, sometimes there's, you take a few steps back, then you go a step forward. And that's exactly what happened with Hunter. He started off very strong, but uh, he had a setback last year. And he said something that was really amazing. He said, Hunter has only done 10 shows in his whole life. This will be his third Olympia. And he's only done, 10 competitions total, including the amateur and pros together. So that's just amazing. I did 10 shows as a teenager. <laughs> so it just goes to show you how unbelievable it is that Hunter is at the where he's at with only 10 contests under his belt. So 
like Lee said, he's still learning his body, he's still learning how to peak. So that kind of put things in perspective. But they gave an award to Samir Banut this weekend, the Ben Weeder Lifetime Achievement Award. Samir was a definitely a worthy recipient of that award. And I was able to make the video that went along with the award. So I will put the link to that video. I've got it on my YouTube channel. So I'll put that link below if you guys want to check it out. It kind of summarized Samir's life from starting bodybuilding in Lebanon as a very skinny kid and then coming over to America, first Detroit, Michigan, where he trained at the original powerhouse gym. And then also California, of course, where he trained at the Mecca of bodybuilding. And then eventually he wins the Mr. Olympia in 1983. Talk to Samir every week. We do a podcast together called the Muscle Maturity Podcast, which is now on Rumble. We used to be on YouTube, but now we're on Rumble. So if you guys are looking for that, it is sponsored by Old School Labs, me and Samir and Nick Trigilli. We talk every week about what's going on in bodybuilding. Check that out when you get a chance. And I was on uh, Dave Palumbo's Heavy Muscle Radio Show this morning with Dave and Chris Aceto, and we talked about the Tampa Pro. So I'll put the link below for that interview as well if you guys want to check that out. We had a couple of big birthdays in the bodybuilding world over the last couple of weeks since I last talked to you guys. Arnold Schwarzenegger's birthday was July 30th, so it was like a little over a week ago. Arnold turned 76 years old. So happy birthday to Arnold, still doing good. I just saw a video of Arnold and Ronnie Coleman training together at Gold's Gym in Venice. So that was kind of cool. Two Mr. Olympia winners training together. And Arnold's still looking good for 76, still pumping iron. His arms still look pretty big, looks very healthy. So thank God for that. Jay Cutler also celebrated the birthday, his 50th birthday on, I believe it was August 3rd, which was last Thursday. So happy birthday to Jay. Jay dieted down and got in great shape. There was a Fit Expo or something over the weekend in Anaheim, California, and Jay was out there and he posed on stage. So that was cool. He looks great. Was really ripped, got in great shape. Looks very, very healthy. So Jay's doing fantastic for a retired bodybuilder, four-time Mr. Olympia, three-time Arnold Classic champion, just like Lee Labrada, a fantastic ambassador for the sport, a great person, very successful businessman, Always makes time for his fans, and Jay's busier than ever. He's got a podcast himself on YouTube and a lot of viewers, so check that out. Jay's a great, great guy, so happy birthday to Jay. Congratulations on getting in such amazing shape. He looks fantastic. We are having a 12-week transformation program on my johnhansonfitness.com website. So our normal 12-week transformation program I'm giving $100 off on that program. So if you guys are interested in changing your body, just like Jay Cutler did, you can do that on my website. Just send me an email at naturalolympia at gmail.com and just use the code podcast. And I will give you $100 off that three-month transformation program where I will write out a workout and diet program for you. And we will do weekly check-ins all during the 12 weeks to help you transform your body lose body fat, build muscle, and get in fantastic condition. So if you guys are interested in that, just again, send me an email at naturalolympia at gmail.com, and we'll give you a little discount on that to celebrate Arnold and Jay's birthday. How about that? All right, I got a few emails since we've last been on, so I want to read those. This first one says, hey, John, love your podcast. I've been listening since 2017. All right, thank you. It says, I used to train at R&J Gym in Brooklyn when I was a teenager. 
Brian Moss' interview is phenomenal. Growing up in Brooklyn and New York City, I remember how Better Bodies put New York City on the map as an East Coast mecca that rivaled Gold's Gym for true hardcore culture. I trained there a few times as well as the Fifth Avenue Gym and the Mid-City Gym in my 20s. I eventually joined the Equinox that Brian mentioned in the podcast when it opened circa 1993. I believe it was on Lafayette Street, and it was the first mega gym any of us had ever seen. Absolutely huge for the early 90s. Metrex had just come out, and it was a magical time. Thank you for the incredible service you do for old-school meatheads like myself and the classic bodybuilding scene from the 70s through to the early 90s. You are a treasure. I understand you're selling some of your old bodybuilding magazines. I'd love to get a list of any muscle builders or flex magazines you may have. Thank you, Lawrence Rosenberg. All right. Thank you, Lawrence. Great, great email. Yeah, I did send Lawrence my uh, list of magazines. So I do have a lot of extra copies of Iron Man and Muscle Builder and Flex. So if you guys are interested, just again, email me at naturalolympia at gmail.com and I'll send you the list of what I have. All right. This next one says, hey, John. I absolutely love your show, your interview style, and your dedication to the sport of bodybuilding. I recently watched a series on Netflix called Killer Sally, covering the murder of Ray McNeil. I think it would be interesting to get the perspective of someone involved in the sport at that time. Have you spoken about this incident in the past? If not, any chance of you reviewing the series? Thank you, and keep up the top-notch work. Sean Sume. I think me and Jerry Branham mentioned that uh, we talked about... What year was it? I think it was 1992. Yeah, I think it was 92 when we did our end of the year wrap up last year. And I believe Ray McNeil won the North America that year where he beat Paul Dillette. So we did talk about that a little bit. But no, we, I haven't reviewed the series. So yeah, that's a good idea for the future future shows. I don't even think I saw that series. I'll have to check it out. I remember when it came out and I remember a lot of people were telling me about it. So I'll have to go back and look at it. And maybe I can get Jerry on the show. We could talk about that again. That would be something that Jerry would probably want to talk about. All right, guys. Well, that's all I got for my opening. Uh, If you guys have any emails about this show or any other comments you have or questions you have, you can just email me at naturalolympia at gmail.com, and I'll read your emails on the air. All right. Here's our interview with Mr. Steve Weinberger, the head judge for the IFBB NPC and we're going to talk about how Steve got involved in the sport and Pumping Iron 2 and meeting Bev Francis and a lot more stuff. So here we go. All right. Welcome back to the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I have a very special guest with us this week, Mr. Steve Weinberger. Steve is the head judge of the MPC Pro League, and he's also the co-owner of Bev's Gym out in New York. So it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Steve, you've been in the game a long time, just like I have. So I thought we could talk about some uh, old school bodybuilding, which is what we do on the podcast. Maybe if you could just start from the very beginning and tell us how you got involved in weightlifting, what got you involved in the bodybuilding world? Just as a kid, I liked lifting weights. I had those those plastic sand weights that I used to lift yeah. them in my bedroom. Yeah. You know, and then from there, I went to a gym. First gym was a, a gym called Zin's Gym. Okay. The bodybuilding room. I went there, and uh, the rest is kind of just history. That's when I, I started volunteering at the bodybuilding shows. Oh, really? I started out with a, a 19-year-old runner backstage, <laughs> you know, go get this, go get that, and that's what I did. And Yeah. From there, I went, you know, and uh, actually, I, I met Bev, and 
Deb and I started training together, and then you know we we got together and we got married, and we were putting the movie Pump and I in two. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk decided, about. Decided to open up a gym. Okay. And the gym we thought was just going to be a just a little hardcore, you know, little gym that was just going to really be for us, and it ended up being much bigger than what we thought it was going to be. Yeah. What year was that, Steve? When you guys opened the gym? Eighty six. Eighty six. Okay. So when you were a runner and and uh, you were nineteen years old, who was promoting the shows back then? Do you remember? Amelia, unfortunately. Oh, was he? Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, how did you meet uh, Steve Mihalik? Because when I saw Pumping Iron Two, I, I, I got to be honest, Steve Mihalik was, you know, I'm just going to call him no punches. Was a total piece of shit. Oh, well, really? I am not a good guy. Really? I met him because he he claimed to have trained Bev. I got to be honest, he never trained Bev. Mm-hmm. When Bev came to America, she was already in shape. I forget the guy. It was an Australian bodybuilder that helped her out because she was already a five-time world powerlifting champion. She had more than a mu- enough muscle. She just had to dial it in. But Steve mm-hmm. Mahalik already had a ticket to Hollywood. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he was a great uh, entertainer, a bullshit artist, whatever you want to call him. Right. And he took it and tried to make it that he created her. So, you know, we had a little bit of a problem with him. We had to shut him up. Oh, okay. But he, um, when neither one of us were a fan of his, to tell you the truth, he took it and tried to turn it into something for publicity for himself. Okay. what he tried to do. The reason we ended up in Mahalik's gym was George Butler and Wayne were producers of the movie Pumping Iron 2. Right. And Bev was staying in New York. And that was the closest bodybuilding gym to his house. It was about 10 minutes away. So okay. that's how we ended up there. It was no like, oh, we found the Holy Grail. It was just, you know... It was convenience. So you said she was in shape already in Australia before she yes, got I'm here. trying to think. It was, it was a Mr. Australian. It was a, not John Torelli. He was a really, really nice guy that really helped us out. He was really, I, I you know, it's so long ago. I'm, yeah. I'm getting senile. I forget his name. But he, he, was a, he was a big name in Australia, and he was the guy that really started with the diet and everything else. You know what I mean? Okay. So – Who's that? It was uh, George's idea to put Steve in the movie. Why did they do that? Because he had a personality or something? No, just his gym was close. Oh, I see. And that's okay. where Bev was training. Okay. It was just it was just convenience, honestly. It could have been anyone's gym at that time. They had a bodybuilding gym that was close to where Wayne lived. Yeah. Did you know Steve first uh, before that? Not really. No. And oh, really? Honestly, okay. I, no. Okay. I started training at his gym there, and then. I didn't stay there very long, honestly. He was yeah. very much full of himself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was I, the smartest man in the world. Just ask him. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you get into the movie? Did they ask you to be in the movie? Or did Steve ask you? Yeah, they just, well, my job was to look after Bev. When she came to America, my job was to show her around, just take her to the gym, whatever she needed, just kind of look after her. I was at, at that time, I was 21. Wow, and that's what I did, you know. And Bev, Bev is six years older than me. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it just, it just, uh, it blossomed from there. Yeah, yeah. Now, did they kind of set that scene up, like at the airport, when you guys? Absolutely. Yeah. Who he was already done when that was set up. Yeah. That was just a, a a kind of a way to introduce us all together. Right, right. That movie was that part of the movie was set up. Yes, a lot of that movie was a hundred percent legit, but they had to have like certain little parts to just show everything yeah they kind of did that in pumping art too didn't they they kind of set up scenes to like introduce the continuity of the, yes. movie, the story yeah yeah 
Now, what did you think about uh, women's bodybuilding back then? Because it was kind of just beginning, right? It was only a few. Oh, I loved it. I loved yeah. it. Diana, not Diana Dennis. Deborah Diana was my favorite. Oh yeah, I remember her. Yeah, okay. she had a really good body. She that was my favorite at the time. Okay. So the whole controversy of that movie was they had a muscular bodybuilder like Bev. Yes. Someone like Rachel or or like most of the girls look back then. All the girls that were competing at the time, you know, that were, yeah, Rachel, Collar, uh, Lori Lori Bowen. Lori Bowen, um, Chris Alexander. Those were the girls that were, were competing and they wanted to bring a girl in heavily muscled. And I guess one of the producers was reading Iron Man magazine or it was either Iron Man, well, it was Iron Man magazine, but it was a picture that Robert Kennedy sent in of Bev hitting a most muscular. Uh, and they thought she would be great as the villain. You know what I mean? As, as yeah. the girl that really has muscle that right. is competing. And really, that's how it started. It was a, a little most muscular shot of Robert Kennedy that he sent into Iron Man magazine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What did you think of the movie when it was finished? I mean, I, I thought I, I thought it could have been a better done a better job. Honestly, I mean, I I was disappointed because I was disappointed in the placings. You know, that last scene where I said, you know, like you know, explain it to me. That was really me. That was not, you know, that was honestly. I mean, you either put her in first place or you you put her in last place. You don't put her in in ninth place or eighth place. Yeah, it just doesn't happen either. She's the best or the absolute worst. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how they tried to sell that movie. They tried to just make this big controversy. I remember, uh, I think Charles Gaines was questioning the judges in one of the scenes. And he was saying, you know, how can you stop a woman from becoming more muscular? It's like asking a woman sprinter not to go as fast. You know, so that's how they set the whole thing up. Now, when you when you got into bodybuilding, who was uh, who did you look up to? Did you have any guys that were like your favorites when you were a kid? Believe it or not, you probably won't even know. I, you probably don't even remember. But when I was in high school, remember? I don't know if you remember Annabelle Lopez. Sure. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah. He had a little health food store, and he had a little gym in his garage, and he was the first guy that really showed me what was up. Honestly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've interviewed Annabelle. My, my favorite my of all time. Believe it or not, was Lou Ferrigno. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. He was my favorite bodybuilder. Did you get to know Lou back then? No, I, I got I became good friends with him after after a couple of disagreements with his placings at the uh, Masters Olympia. We kind of you know clashed a little bit. He wasn't happy <laughs> when he lost to Robbie. Right, but, right. You know, I get along great with Lou now. I love him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seems like you've always liked the uh, the more muscular, the bigger guy. So I was wondering. Definitely. Who- I, I always did. You know, the Bertle Foxes, those yeah. kind of bodies. I love muscle. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of like when you saw, when you were with Bev, you kind of believed that she should have did better. Yeah. You know, when I first saw Bev, she freaked me out. I was like, I never saw a woman like that. I was like, I, I don't know about this, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. But then I got to know her personality and everything. We just got along really well. But when I first met her, I was like, I don't know, man. This is maybe a little too much for me. Right, right. So when did you first get into the judging then, Steve? In 80, 87. 87, okay. Yes. Okay, so it was like several years after the Pumping Iron movie then. Yes. 
Okay. And what made you want to get into that? I, I, I just love bodybuilding, you know? I mean, yeah, I did powerlifting because I wasn't good enough to be a bodybuilder. I didn't have the shape. I knew I didn't have the shape. You know, I had wide waist, short arms, biceps with no triceps. I just didn't have the shape to be yeah. a bodybuilder. So yeah. why try to bang my head against the wall when nothing was going to happen? So I went yeah. to powerlifting. Okay. How'd you do in powerlifting? Good. I did good, you know. But honestly, Bev was the star. So I really, you know, at powerlifting, I went up to 300 pounds. I had some pretty good lifts. But hmm. all of our energy and our time went into promoting Bev. Cause she was really good at what she did. You know what I mean? Yeah. She was a you know, world champion powerlifter six time world champion bodybuilder. And, you know, I just was really the bad carrier, you know, Bev was the star. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you got into the judging then about a year after you guys opened up your gym then. Yes. Okay. All right. So how, how often or how long did you do the powerlifting for? I did it for about five years. Okay. Okay. So then you decided to get in the judging because you were in the gym business and you were already in the. Well, I just, I just wanted, I wanted to be a judge. I was, I'd sit there and I picked, you know, everything, and then I'd say, "Look, I could do this, you know, just let me judge." And then, you know, I was, I was sitting in the audience judging by myself, mm, you know, okay. figuring it all out. Yeah, yeah. What were for some of the big shows you saw when you were younger? Did you ever see the '84 Olympia? It was in New York. I did. I, I was at the '84 Olympia. Yeah, yeah. Fact, you, I got. If you look right here, one of you can't. Oh, it's it's hanging up. I have one of the see these medals. Yeah, I have one from '84. This oh, really? '96. Okay. Yeah, I, I was there. I was also at the '82 Nationals when when Lee Haney won. Oh yeah, yeah, that was. I saw Lee yeah. Haney win the Nationals. I saw Lee Haney win the um, Night of Champions. Yeah, and I saw Lee Haney win the Olympia, all in New oh. York. Wow, cool. What was the first Olympia you saw? The New York one. The New York one? Okay. Yeah. 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 In 1984. Yeah. What did you think of Lee Haney when you saw him at the Nationals? Oh, I honestly, I didn't know which way to look. Him and Matt Mendenhall, they both looked great. Mm-hmm. They really did. They were both unbelievable. Yeah. Lee Haney, just flawless. And honestly, so was Matt Mendenhall. But Matt Mendenhall never took that next step, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. So to be a star, you know, I mean, he was a star. I mean, he yeah. had a contract. He was, you know, huge, but Lee Haney was the man. I mean, he honestly, to me, he's the greatest of all time. Not just because he's a great bodybuilder, but he retired so young and he's such a great person. Yeah. I mean, we're never going to see anybody with eight Olympia titles done at 31. We'll never see that again. Right. I know. Yeah. He, his career was really unbelievable. I mean, he won the first. Amazing. He, won the, he won the Teenage Mr. America. So he was a, he was yeah. a, he was a teenager. And then he won the first junior nationals. Then he won the nationals. Then he wins the universe. And then, like you said, his career was unbelievable. He won eight Olympias in a row. And I think he only lost like a couple times. You know, I think he only lost like two pro. He lost in, in, in Europe to to Mohammed Makawa. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, that that's who he lost to, and he was he was so disappointed he was going to quit. It was Jim Mannion that said, "Are you out of your mind?" He was, <laughs> he was really going to quit. If I really? can't beat this guy, what am I doing? You know, he was like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Honestly, the greatest of all time. Yeah, you know what? You know what else I love about Lee too is how he handles loss and how you know how he is as a character, like you said. You know, because I remember when he lost to Muhammad and he picks him up, you know, like a like a real champion would. You know, instead of getting mad about it, you know, he acted like a champion. Uh, he's a, he's pure class, pure yeah. class. Even to this day, you know, he's, yeah, he's absolutely he's a great representative. Yeah, 
He's the best. Yeah. So tell me about that uh, 84 Olympia, because that was the one that Sergio came back, and there was a lot of – That was great. Yeah. Yeah. I, Sergio was backstage pumping up in, in one of those plastic – you know those plastic uh, – yeah. He had one of those things up. pumping up, and he was just – he was doing dumbbell <laughs> curls for about 25 minutes. And they're like, Sergio, it's time to go on. And I'm not ready. You know, and his voice, his squeaky voice, yeah. I'll yeah, tell yeah. you when I'm ready. <laughs> and oh, my phone's ringing. I'm sorry. Let me just. No, that's all right. That's cool. Um, and he they they waited for him when he was ready. Wow. Luke Rigno was there watching him. Yeah. And it was it was it was amazing. I mean, you know, it was that was that was my first Olympia. So think about that. That's how that was my invite, you know, to bodybuilding the '84 yeah. Olympia. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it was so crazy. I I seen the uh, videotape of that. I wish I would have went to that one, but the crowd was going yeah, so crazy. Hitting his legs. Yeah. Sergio hitting the most muscular. Yeah, that was the one where we, he kind of had like the old guard of bodybuilding. You know, he had, he had, like, Boyerko was in it, Bill Grant, Albert Beckles, Chris Dickerson. And then you had all the new guys coming in too, you know, McAway and Samir was there. And then you had Sergio, of course, you know. Right. It was definitely a changing of the guards, but that's yeah. another guy that really helped me out a lot and also helped Bev out a lot was Albert Beckles. I became very close with him. Oh really? Okay. We stayed with him in California. He he was very good. He had he he really welcomed us with open arms. He was great. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, what was uh, what was the next Olympia you saw after that, Steve? Um, did you start going to some of the bigger like Olympia? Um, yeah, it was, I think it was eighty six. I think it was in was eighty six Los Angeles. Uh, Columbus. Columbus. I was in '86. Okay, all right. I just, I just about, I went to just about every single one after that. Yeah. Um, except for a couple. Okay. And I was, I was in all the nationals. Wow. Okay. The first one being the first nationals in '82, the one that Lee Haney won. That was the first nationals ever. That was the first one you saw. That was after the split with the AAU and the MPC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That was in New York City. That was in Manhattan. Right. When did you start judging like the national level shows and the pro shows? Well, the, the pro shows I started judging, I started judging the men in like uh, 90. And then I started judging everything when Bev stopped competing in 91. Okay. Because when Bev was competing, I was still, I wasn't judging women. I was, I was, you know, certain shows I was judging. Yeah. Okay. But then after, after like about, I think it was, Maybe ninety four. I started judging everything. Okay, all right. I might be off by a year or two. I'm like, I told yeah. you, I'm a little senile. <laughs> no, you're doing good. Uh, how did you feel it was back then with the with the pro shows? Um, who was like your favorite? Did you agree with the way the Olympia was going? Oh well, ninety four. That was like Dorian, right? Yeah, I mean uh, Dorian. You know, that's why I could. I did not judge any Olympias. For when Dorian was competing, because Dorian trained in my gym for the Olympias. Oh, okay, okay. Any Olympia that Dorian, any show that Dorian competed in, I didn't judge. So those Olympias, I had to stand out. It's only when he stopped, when he, when he, it, and then it was in New York again when Ronnie won. When I was judging Ronnie the won. Olympias again, yeah. But I was it, judging the other shows, just not the Olympia. Yeah. When did you first meet Dorian? Because I know you guys were really close. Um, I met him. When he came to New York for Night of Champions. Okay. 
So that was 1990, right? And that was the year he lost. He lost to um, Menezes. Yeah, yeah. And that's when you first met him? That's when we became friends. Yeah, we just we clicked. And then he, he started staying at my house and training at the gym. Yeah. What did you like about Dorian? It was more than his physique, right? His discipline. His yeah. Un- unbelievable discipline. And when it was 8 o'clock, it was time to eat. And it was at 11 o'clock, it was time to train. And it didn't matter what was going on. It, it, it's, you know, I mean... He's a different guy now, but back then, to know him, it was unbelievable. I mean, he's he's more of a regular guy now. You know, he's yeah. kind of a laid back, easy going, but he was a robot. He was a total yeah. machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He liked you too. You guys were close friends, right? Yes. Yeah. We're still close. Yeah. He lives in Spain now. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So that when he got really big, that was ninety three, I think the the yes. second year that he won and. It, it's kind of famous now where he guest posed at your show and everybody was freaking out. That's when everybody. Right. Yeah. That's when he took those underwear pictures. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. What show was that, that you guys were promoting? That was the Atlantic States, the Beth Francis Atlantic States. We still run that show. Oh, really? Okay. Wow. Yeah. Now, if you were going to compare like Dorian to Lee Haney, well, what would the comparison be? Well, I mean, Lee Haney beat him the yeah. next year. I don't think Lee would have beat him, but. I think Lee Haney has a much a much more pleasant physique to the general public where Dorian is the mass monster. Mm-hmm. Where Lee you you could I think Lee is a, a more sellable body to the general public. Yeah. Where Dorian is hardcore bodybuilding. Yeah. Do you think that's when bodybuilding kind of changed a little bit when uh, Dorian came into the picture and that's it, when the mass monster started coming? Yeah, Dorian was the was the beginning of that. Honestly, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I was just I told you I was putting together this video for Samir, and I was looking at his '83 Olympia, and some of the guys in there were. I mean, McAway was second, so you had right. these really smaller, more ripped guys that were doing really, really well. And then it seemed like it got to after a certain point, it was like you had to be a certain size. Right. Yeah, I think Dorian did that. Honestly. Yeah. Okay. Do you think if somebody came in like a Samir and he didn't do classic and he did open, do you think he would do well? Or do you think it's yeah. just, yeah, you think I, it would? I still, I still think those bodies would do well. I really do. Yeah. I, I honestly do. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Cause I, I was wondering about that. Cause I thought the judges would look at it like it's advanced so far. Now these guys are so big that they wouldn't accept anybody unless they were like a certain size. No, I mean, I, Look at Sean Clarita. I mean, you know, he was a little guy that did good against big guys. I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. I still think it's the symmetry, the muscularity, and the shape. Yeah. So that's that's really important criteria as far as not just the mass. No. I mean, mass is important, but mass is not the end all. Yeah. You can, you can get a guy. I, I still think a guy 220 pounds could beat a guy 270 if they're both in really good shape. Mm-hmm. I really do believe that. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people feel like it, bodybuilding, you know, it has advanced or it, it's the evolution of bodybuilding is that they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But bodybuilding is different than in other sports because it's not about how much weight we lift or how fast we run. It's about how the physique looks, right? Right. Honestly, I mean, it's I, – I bet you a guy like Chris Bumstead would do good in the open. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Yeah. I, I really do. I mean – got beautiful shape, great legs. I mean, he would, I'm sure he would be very competitive in the open. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's really like who looks the best, right? Yes. Yeah. It's not about who's got the biggest arms or – I mean, if Rami would still be winning. I mean, he's he's not in good condition. He's the biggest guy, but his shape is – the last couple of years has taken a, a turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you about the the posing, Steve. I saw you. Uh, I think you were debating Milos on one. I think it might have been Devin. I, I know Milos is so. <laughs> I mean, I understand what he's saying, and I get it, but it's still bodybuilding. I I I I don't look at it as art. Some people look at it as art. I still look at it as a sport. And those mandatory poses tell you everything. Yes, it's entertaining if a guy wants to pose, and yes, posing was better maybe five or ten years ago than it is now because the guys don't put as much into it. But you still have to judge the body. Yeah. I, I still think those mandatories tell you about everything. You hit those mandatories right, fine. But if you want to also put some flair into it, I have no problem with that. You know what I mean? If you, But I don't think it should be judged on, on a dance. I really don't. On hmm. performing, a little bit. Like if you've got – I can see if you have two guys that are absolutely identical and one guy put a better posing routine together and needed a tiebreaker, maybe that would work. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But as far as judging the routine to judge the routine, I disagree with that. I think the mandatories are really where it's at. I, I really do. But I, I it would be nicer and more entertaining for the guys to do better routines. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd like to see that too. I'm not against it. I'm really not against it. Yeah. I'm not like it shouldn't be. But I don't think it should be a whole round pose for that. You still have to take the whole body into effect. Yeah. So do you think it should be judged like it used to be or no? Honestly, it's okay if it's judged like that. I could, Either way, but I'm judging the body. As a judge, I'm judging the body. Yeah. You know, am I entertained? Yes. Is it nice? Yes. Is it pleasing? Yes. But I, I mean, a guy that's not as hard or not in the same condition – with a great routine, is not going to beat a guy in great condition. Right, it's, right. I just, I'm not giving it to him. It's not fair. Yeah. Well, know, maybe the guy took, you know, dance or whatever. It's not, it's, <laughs> no, I, I just, I still think it goes back to the body. Yeah. What made me think of that was you just mentioned uh, Lee Haney winning the Night of the Champions. Right. And I've got that magazine from Flex Magazine, like from 40 years ago, and I read the article and they were judging each round. So they judged the symmetry round, they judged the muscularity round, and then they judged the posing. And so Greg DeFerro was second in that contest. And I guess he was a little bit leaner, you know, than than Lee. But he didn't place as high in, like, the symmetry or the muscularity, I think because of his shape, because he was kind of blocking. He had a thick waist. He had a very yeah. thick waist, Greg DeFerro. He, he had a lot of muscle, very good muscularity, but he did not have a pleasing physique. Right, right. So then when it got to the posing round, I guess that he worked on his posing. I think he actually worked with Samir, now that we're talking about it. But um, he had a great posing routine, and all the judges put him, like, first or second in the posing round. And Lee, I guess, had not really developed his posing that well at that time because he was still an amateur. Uh, I mean, he was a pro, but it was his first year as a pro. He was a rookie pro. Right. And he placed lower – in the posing round and in the pose down, and then he beat Greg by one point. So it was interesting to see how they judged the posing, and they put so much emphasis on that. And he ended up, Lee ended up winning the show only by one point, even though he had a better body because of uh, Greg's posing. 
And that's why I don't think we should judge the posing routine on posing alone. Hmm. Because there's no way Greg DeFaro should have almost beat Lee Haney. Because he was Haney, yeah. that would have been really bad for the sport, in my opinion. Okay. Because that, that's the wrong body representative. Yeah. What about someone like McAway, who was like in the 84 Olympia, and he got second place? That's a guy that could pose and look really good. Yeah. That's a guy that could maybe beat Lee Haney if they're very close. That I could see. Yeah. He has a great physique. Better right. than Greg DeFaro. I, you know, if those guys are close, now that's something where I could see if the guys are close, very, very close in the body, and Muhammad kills him in the posing routine, well then, yeah, he gets that round. I could see that. Right. So what you're saying is they got to have the physique first. and Absolutely. And then if they're a good poser, then you could see him. Otherwise, you know, yeah. just, you know, guys like to just know how to pose will do really well. And yeah, I'm just not fan of the bodybuilders. Yeah, it's still bodybuilding. It's still muscle. Right, right. Yeah, I remember Lee Haney saying that after he lost those Grand Prix to to McAway, he said he really had to improve his posing because right. that's why McAway beat him. You know, and Lee did become a good poser. You know, when he was doing his Olympias. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think they should put more effort in posing. I'm. I, I do don't too. disagree with that. I really yeah. do. Yeah, I do but too. I don't think it should. I don't think it should change the results. That okay. I don't believe in. So you don't think it should be judged separately, like a no. separate? You still have to judge that body. Do you judge think the routine with the body? Take your body to the best it can in the condition you are. Do you think the judges, a lot of judges, would have a hard time scoring that because if they were just looking at the posing and they weren't looking at the physique, do you think a lot of them would get confused about that? Then they shouldn't be judging. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you've always got to take the physique into account first, which I agree with. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. It's bodybuilding. Yeah. So how much of a, a bodybuilding, like you said, it was a sport? How much do you think it was? A, it's a sport compared to an art. I still think it's a sport because it's a sport. You train every day. You you you're in the gym every day, and yeah, you're not running. You're not you know playing football or baseball, but you're training every day, and that's to me that's sport. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, holding is an art. I'll, I'll I will say that, but actual comparison. I mean, excuse me, compulsories is is a sport. You have to know how to hit those poses. Right. You can't just. You got to know how to hit a front double bicep. You have to know how to pop your lat out. You know how to know how to show the sweep on your thigh. I mean, you you really have to know how to pose. It's not just you know you hit a front double bicep. I mean, there there are ways to hide bad body parts and and present good body parts. Mm-hmm. In a better fashion, where you don't see the bad body parts. I mean, that to me, that that's that that's a little bit odd, but it's still sport. Yeah, yeah. Do you think learning how to present your physique on stage, Steve, is uh, like it seems like some people have better body awareness than others? You know. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, I know a lot of it is practical. So important. Yeah. Because there's some people that get up there, they have the great body, and they just don't know how to position their body right. And I don't know how much of it is experience, or they just don't know. They don't have the body awareness, you know. I don't know if they practice practice posing. You know, posing is just as important as training. I mean, especially those, those I think those last 10 weeks, you should be posing every day, at least a half hour. I agree. Yeah. Very, very important. Presentation is everything. You could have the best body in the world. Like, look, Lee Haney had the best body in the world. And Muhammad beat him. Why? Presentation. Yeah, yeah. Do you think uh, the posing has gotten a little worse over the years? I mean, I, when I yeah. think back to guys like, unfortunately, yeah, compared to where it was, I, I, I do. Yes, 
I mean, I'd like to see it come back a little more. Yeah, like Lee Labrada, even like Kevin Lebroni was great. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sean Kevin Ray was great. Lee was great. Sean was great. Yeah. Flex was great. Even Chris Cormier was great. Yeah, there, there was yeah. a lot of great poses back then. Those guys really put effort into it. You know, I mean, it's just it, it's it's not as much as it used to be. I like to see a little bit more, but I still don't want to judge posing. I want to judge the body. Yeah. Okay. One other thing I wanted to mention was it seems like looking at the Olympia, like when we used to watch the Olympia years ago and Lee won, you know, eight in a row and then Ronnie won eight in a row and, and Dorian won six in a row. It seems like now the judges won't give the Mr. Olympia title to Mr. Olympia just because he's the reigning champ. They'll, they're more likely to take it away from him. I agree. Yeah. And I, and I think it should be like that. It should have been too. like that years ago too, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I like that better. It's, you know, you, you, it's not like, you know, the heavyweight champion in the world where it's a fight. They went 12 rounds or 10 rounds and it could have went either way. They give it to the champion. Sometimes they give it to the champion when maybe they shouldn't go. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes the sport a lot more exciting because if somebody can come back, you know. Nobody wants to see the same repetitive. Yeah. Yeah. Like the year Jay lost and when he came back. And it was amazing he came back and won. Yeah, yeah. It really was. Unbelievable. I think about that when I look at some of those old contests, like between Arnold and Sergio. Like if Arnold would have lost to Sergio, what a great rematch that would have been the next year, you know. And and, and honestly, he should have a couple of those years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe even Ronnie, too. Ronnie might have could have lost him. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Almost, you could say that just about any bodybuilder. You know, think about how hard it is to dial in and be perfect eight years in a row. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you get a cold, you have a stomach ache, you ate bad food. So many things can happen within that time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And plus the mental pressure, too, coming back and you got all that. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who do you see as uh, some of the front runners now, Steve, if you want to talk about that for the Olympia? Well, I mean, Derek, you you, you, you got to look at Derek. I still think um, Labrador is good. Yeah. I think Nick is good. I think there's a lot of good bodybuilders right now. I, I really do. I think there's there's a lot coming up, and I think it's 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 an exciting time. Yeah. It's not a boring time. I mean, look, I mean, our current Mr. Olympia is unbelievable. Yeah. But – if Derek, who just had a whole year to prepare without worrying about weight, puts his legs together and his chest together, that's going to be a battle right there. Mm-hmm. Those two guys are going to battle. And, you know, I mean, I saw pictures of Labrada. He looked amazing. Yeah, I saw he that, looked, too. Looked, honestly, two years ago, he looked great. Last year, he looked horrible, honestly. Yeah. But he looks great again. You know, and Nick, I, I he's a monster. He's a, he, he And he always comes in shape. Not the prettiest body but always in condition and always ready. Yeah. Does Nick kind of remind you of Dorian with his dedication? I don't know him enough to really, to, to make that, that comment. I really, I don't, I mean, I know him to say hi. I never really had an in-depth conversation with him Mm -hmm. more than hi and how you doing sort of thing. Yeah. But he's very impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. He just seems so focused on the contest and it seems like even after the show's over he starts training again for the next right month. back to training again yeah. yeah 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 dorian always took a month off did he yeah he went to hawaii for a month yeah 
Oh, okay. always took a month off. Yeah, Ronnie did that too, right? He would take a couple months yes. off. Yes. Yeah. I think it's a good thing to do, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, getting right back into the gym after you just killed yourself for sixteen to twenty weeks is rough. Yeah. You got to see Dorian train at your gym. How was that? I trained with him. We trained. We were training partners, believe it or oh, not. Oh, really? Okay. I was two seventy five then. I could actually lift weights. <laughs> How was that doing the the low sets and all out intensity like that? It was great. I loved it. Yeah. But where Dorian messed up was the he built the body that he built, and he kept trying to get it an inch better, a quarter of an inch better. Instead of cruising, those last couple of years, those last three years, he shouldn't have been banging it as hard as he has. And yeah. If you talk to him now; he'll even tell you that. Yeah, I've seen he him. Should have backed up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he hip went, his bicep went. Yeah, I think he even mentioned you in some of the interviews saying that, you know, you, you were telling him to do that, yeah. Please slow down, but this this guy was like this. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't talk to him. Could not talk. He was a robot. <laughs> well, it was the type of training he was doing, too, because it was so all-out intensity, and he was just training heavier and heavier and heavier, right? And your body can only take so much. And he would not stop. He just would not yeah. stop. And then, like, right he's... Up to the show. Right up to the show. Yeah, when he's dieting, he's he's more susceptible to injury, you know, because his body fat's lower. Yeah, yeah. So as a judge, Steve, when you look at these guys, whether it's pro or amateur, you're taking into account all these factors, not only the size, but the shape, the symmetry, the definition, the conditioning. Um, which one is more important or are they all the same? They're all the same, but shape and condition kill. Conditioning, you could take a guy without – really the best shape in really good condition and beat a guy with better conditioning. Yeah. Conditioning is so important. I mean, some guys with great shape could get over because they have such great shape and maybe not in the best condition, but condition, you get a guy in condition. I mean, Flex, Flex Wheeler, no one had better shape than him. Right. But if he just would have dialed it in just a little bit more, yeah, I'm sure he would have had a few sand downs. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. No one had a better body than him. Well, like that was just, the best body. I mean, really. Yeah. Well, like you just said earlier, if a guy can, a guy could come in smaller and still do really well as long as he's got the physique and he's he's ripped. That would be flex. Yeah. Flex and Ronnie. When Ronnie beat him in New York, everyone thought for sure flex was going to be Mister Olympia. Right. But Ronnie kept doing those quarter turns and those quarter turns and that mass and that that conditioning beat flex. Yeah, that was when when conditioning won. Yeah, yeah. On that think, day, it seems like also the last few years I've been noticing the guys are getting better symmetry. Their waists are coming in tighter, and they're they're more it's concerned with that. You know, Nick, who doesn't have a nice shape, improved his shape beautifully last year. Yeah, yeah. He had very his shape was pleasing. I think guys are working on that, and I think that's a great thing. I do too. Yeah, it's really making me look a lot better. Than they used to look. They yeah. looked a lot better last year than he looked the year before, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny when you look at some of these old Olympias, like from the 70s and 80s, um, sometimes the guys who were the reigning Mr. Olympias, like I think Zane did this and Haney did this, they would come back and they'd be actually lighter. They wouldn't be bigger because they just felt like they could still improve by being more refined and more cut. Well, it was amazing what Zane did. Yeah. I mean, guys like Robbie Robinson and, you know what I mean, it's just – yeah. What he did was unbelievable, really. Yeah. What do you feel about Zane's physique as a judge, dude? Very impressive. 
not the kind of physique I would want as a bodybuilder. Yeah. But very impressive. Yeah. I'd prefer more of a Robbie Robinson, a more muscular type body. Yeah. But Zane just, you know, Zane was perfect to put us in the general public's eye. Mm-hmm. He could walk into a a, a, a place in a, in a tank top and shorts and not look like a lunatic. Right, could, right. You know, where he could fit in but look amazing. Yeah. Do you think it's important in the bodybuilding world now to appeal to the general public or honestly no. no. I don't think there I don't I, I it would be nice if we had a general public but we are a niche sport and we're always going to be a niche sport and I think by trying to sell it to the general public I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. I think you know people like Frank Zane or or Chris Bumstead will get more of a general a general audience and more and more fans because they look that way. Like Chris Bumstead, I mean, he got high school kids that love him. Oh he's yeah, so popular. Yeah, because of the way he looks, he's 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 very muscular. He's got a great body, but he's not over the top. Yeah, yeah. Do you think Chris is responsible for classic physique growing so much, or do you think it's just uh, people like that division? People like that look. People really like that division. I yeah. think he's a, a huge help for it. You huge star, superstar. Yeah. He's he's the Frank Zane or the Arnold of that division mm-hmm. right now. I mean, he's he's a rock star. Yeah, absolutely. He, he was in my gym about two months ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I he took a couple of pictures on Instagram, and people that weren't even members of my gym came to the gym to take pictures of him. It was amazing. It was like <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. Like, where are these people coming from? Yeah, I know. It is. So I, think, I think he's got like nine million followers on Instagram or something. And they follow him, boy. They they came into the gym. Yeah, I had to tell him, "Look, you got to wait outside." He <laughs> wants to train. Right. How good do you know uh, Arnold? Hi, how are you? I I had conversations with him mm-hmm. about judging and bodybuilding, but you know that, that's about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was on a um, in Australia. We Tony Doherty set up a uh, a yacht around Australia. Oh, and I cool. sat with him and had a long talk with him, which was, which was very nice. Yeah, you know, so it, you know, I've had I've had conversations with him. Yeah, what do you think of his whole career, his whole life, and how he promoted bodybuilding and, and what influence he had on the sport of bodybuilding? He made bodybuilding. Yeah, he made honestly, without a doubt, he made bodybuilding. Yeah, the movie Pumping Iron, then him going to Hollywood and never forgetting his roots and mm-hmm. becoming the governor. What? What he did was amazing. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, and he continued to promote it with the Arnold Classic. And and he still does to this day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I got into bodybuilding, and I started in 1977, so that was the year that Pumping Iron came out and his book came out. So he was going around the country doing interviews with radio shows, TV shows. I mean, he was relentless. And, I mean, just the, the marketing he did was incredible. And, and his personality is just yeah yeah. yeah I had that. That was the first book I bought, Education of a Bodybuilder. Yeah, yeah. And people don't realize today what an influence that was because, I mean, back then, bodybuilding was considered a real weirdo sport. Uh, they thought bodybuilders were stupid. They thought, you know, um, they had no personality. And then he gets up there and he's joking around with these people. And, All personality. All yeah. his personality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was great. He really was. Yeah. And he was so confident, too. Like, he would go on the yeah. Johnny Carson show, which people don't realize this today because people don't even re- remember who Johnny Carson was. So like, that was the biggest talk show in the country. 
And yes. he was on there, and he was so calm and so confident. He would joke around with these guys. It was amazing. I don't think anybody could have did it like Arnold did, you know? No, he he honestly, he took the sport to a different level. And it, and he's still involved. He's still, he's actually, he's a big one with the judging. In fact, the Arnold Classic, we judge the posing yeah. because he wants that. We do judge the posing. Right, right. That round we is judged the Arnold Classic because he insists. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think about some other uh, Mr. Olympia winners like uh, Jay Cutler? Jay's another great ambassador for the sport, right? Jay Cutler is takeaway Arnold, smartest bodybuilder I know. Yeah, yeah. He's still as popular as he is now as he was when he was Mr. Olympia. He's booked every weekend. I watch him because, you know, I do a couple of shows with him in Boston. Mm-hmm. He stays until the last fan is gone. A little kid comes, he gives him a photo. Mm-hmm. Take photos with everyone, anyone, answers everyone's questions. He is the ultimate professional. Yeah, yeah. And he's looking amazing, too. He's turning 50 this year. He's he looks great 50. for 50. He really does. Yeah. But I, I think what Arnold did was amazing, and what Jay did as a bodybuilder is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's a great businessman. But like you said, he's very personable with his fans, and he's always been like that, even when he was Mr. Olympia. Always. Always have time for everyone. Yeah. Never say no to a picture. Always giving pictures to young kids. He's just just a real, besides a, a, a small businessman, he's genuinely a really nice guy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. What do you think about uh, Ronnie's physique when you look at his reign as Mr. Olympia from, you know, 1998 to 2006, I think, or 2005? Um, do you think his physique, he got much, much bigger throughout the years. Did it, do you think it improved, or do you think he was at his best when he first started? I think he started? took it a little too far, but I'm so impressed with his physique. Yeah. So impressed. I mean, his, his, when he was on those those first three years, Yeah, I think the first three years he was unbelievable. Yeah. I think he got a little too big after that, honestly. Yeah. But those first three years, I mean, I he'd come in here at 10 o'clock at night and squat 800 pounds. <laughs> I mean, he just – you know, put his headphones on, yeah. not putting on no show, yeah. no one watching, 800 pounds, ass to the ground. He was amazing. Yeah. Do you he think do walking him? lunges from the front door to the street and back with 100-pound dumbbells. Jeez. <laughs> I never saw anyone strong like that in my life. Yeah, I know. It's never. A, yeah. Do you think we'll ever see a physique like that again? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever see anyone – and he, a bodybuilder as strong as that again, to tell you the truth. Right. He was so crazy strong. Yeah. I remember in, in, in Northridge, California, seeing Burl Fox for the first time doing, I think, 90-pound dumbbell presses. I thought, holy shit. But I, I think, you know, after seeing Ronnie, Burl Fox doesn't even impress me. Right, right. He what are your thoughts? Far, the strongest bodybuilder I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts about how he is now with all the injuries and stuff? It's sad. You know, I, I love him, but, it, you know, his attitude is great. Yeah. He's still, you know, I wouldn't change anything. I'm happy, and I'm, I'm glad he's happy, but it, I, I hate seeing it, to tell you the truth. Yeah. He, he does have a strong mind, I'll tell you. He's, you know, he's always strong smiling and all those surgeries he went through and everything. And he's always in a good mood, always in a good mood. Yeah. yeah and, uh, it's sad, honestly. I don't like seeing it. I don't either. Yeah. Such a good guy. 
I saw you on another show and you said you don't think um, anybody will win the Olympia like that again, like eight times in a row because no, I don't think so. so much competition. And yeah, there's no one, there's no, there's no dom. Like even last year, it was, it was, nobody dominated. He won, but he didn't dominate. You know what I mean? Adi, yeah. Yeah. He, he won. He deserved to win. He was the winner, but he didn't dominate. It wasn't like hottie. And then five places back was everybody else. Right. Like he's right. going to have to really bring it. Yeah. Because I, I do believe Derek is going to bring it. LeBron is going to bring it. Nick is going to bring it. And, you know, any of them could win. I mean, Nick really improved his shape. He's, he's no one to take lightly. Yeah. And LeBron looks great. I couldn't, when I saw him guest pose at Jim Banyan show in Pittsburgh this year, mm-hmm. I was blown away. And that was when I saw Derek last year, and I thought, hmm. this guy is going to be so dangerous. Yeah. So yeah. dangerous. Yeah. He's got that little waist and that big back. Yeah. He's just, oh, whoa. Yeah, he's, he's always had the incredible shape, and now he's got the size to go along with it. Yes. And he had a whole year to prepare without worrying about weight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just saw a video of uh, Hunter, and he looks amazing. I guess he's going in uh, Tampa this weekend. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he's uh, he's very impressive. I mean, he's just uh, well, he's got that family blood. I mean, his father was great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lee looks unbelievable, doesn't he? I mean, I, like I think he's, he's the best to... bodybuilder for this for his age. Yeah, he's the best looking bodybuilder there is. He's sixty-three years old. Conditioning is unbelievable. I know. The guy doesn't age at all. He's incredible. Uh, he looks like he's thirty years old. I know he does. So how do you like the the gym business, Steve? Obviously, you've been in a long time, and I you've got one, one of the best gyms in the country. This is year going on year thirty seven. Wow! And I love it. I, yeah, I, I, I I'm here every day. Yeah. And how how much has the gym gotten bigger since you guys started? We started with five thousand square feet, and now we're just under thirty. Wow! But when we opened up the gym, everyone said, "Don't open the gym; it's never going to make it. You're not going to do it." We were like, "Oh." We'll just try and, you know, mm-hmm. 37 years later, you know, <laughs> they were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's an incredible, that's a, that's a long life of uh, owning the gym. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I, I still love it. I still, I love coming to the gym every day. I love training. I just, I love buying equipment. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. That's awesome. All right, Steve. Well, I'll let you go. I know you're busy. You're running the business there, but I appreciate you coming on the show and Anytime. talking a little bit about bodybuilding. It was uh, good talking to you. I, I always Thank wanted you. to talk to you about your past because uh, I saw you in that movie, you know, years ago, and I know you've been in the mountain sport for a long time. So it's great to talk to you. Great talking to you too. All right, and I'll see you this weekend. Yeah, I'll see you this weekend in Tampa. All right. All right, Steve. Take care, buddy. Bye bye. All right, thanks for listening to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. Thank you to Steve Weinberger for taking the time out of his busy schedule to join us for an interview for the show. I really appreciated that, Steve. Next week, we will probably do our sixth anniversary special where I'll get some clips from some of the old shows that we've done on the Bodybuilding Legends podcast to celebrate our sixth anniversary. July 3rd, 2017 was our first episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I think we have Almost 280 shows in the bank now. So I will go back and pick out some clips from some great shows we've done over the last six years. And we will probably do that next week. 
if you guys have any questions or any suggestions for interviews, just do send an email to naturalolympia at gmail.com and we will take care of that. And finally, of course, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors for continuing to sponsor the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I could not do it without you guys. And if any of you out there are interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor yourself, you can do that by just checking the link below, or you can go to the our website, the bodybuildinglegendshow.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see the link for becoming a Patreon sponsor. All right, before I let you guys go, I'm going to read this article that comes from the November 1985 issue of Flex Magazine. It is written by our friend Rick Wayne, and it's called Here's Bev, and it was the cover story. It says, when Arnold Schwarzenegger boasted on the soundtrack of the original Pumping Iron that he had chosen to miss his father's funeral in Austria rather than interrupt his Mr. Olympia preparations in Santa Monica, California, his fans didn't know whether to applaud his blinkered dedication to his campaign or to weep over his twisted sister values. Long after the movie had been laid to rest, however, the popular view was that en route to Mount Olympus, Arnold had sweated what little humanity may previously have irrigated his soul. The more cynical observer took his winning performance in The Terminator as further proof that whatever was human in Arnold had long ago perished at the altar of ambition. What a pleasant surprise, therefore, to discover that, in fact, bodybuilding's favorite son had indeed attended his father's burial, and that the contradictory line that had sought to underscore Arnold's inexorable obsession with being the brightest star in the bodybuilding firmament had been manufactured by a former Newsweek writer-photographer-turned-movie-director, none other than George Butler. That much a now-matured Arnold, with freshly minted concern for his public image, made crystal clear in a recent deathly-delivered Rolling Stone interview. The world can hardly wait to learn who initially experienced the earth-shaking ecstasies of the pump, which you may recall the Arnold of Pumping Iron assured us is like coming. Was it Schwarzenegger? Was it Schwarzenegger come Butler? Evidently, neither is quite ready to disabuse us of this particular stress. On the matter of the formidable Miss Francis, however, Butler is positively garrulous. In a 1984 interview with the New York Times, he insisted that if Miss Francis and Mr. Schwarzenegger did not have the same matinee idol appeal, they most assuredly had the same kind of muscularity. It therefore comes as no surprise when Butler notes that Ms. Francis has, quote, created a schism between the beauty queens of bodybuilding and what some call Amazons, unquote. What this Butler saw was Ms. Francis as the woman of the future. Shortly before publication of the recalled Times interview, I had taken the opportunity to talk with Ms. Francis in Las Vegas immediately after the Caesars Cup event. That's the heart of the controversial pumping iron, too. Alas, on said occasion, all I was able to coax out of Butler's futuristic Wonder Woman was that she was very disappointed with the result of the Las Vegas gamble, and that while she had not for a moment dared to anticipate victory on her very first outing as a bodybuilder, she'd most certainly expected to do better than eighth place. Some weeks after the Vegas event, I took a call from Miss Tegan Cleave, who knows what it is to be notorious. She had two questions. Was I aware that Bev Francis was in Los Angeles, and might I perchance be interested in a Flex exclusive on Bev visit? Ms. Cleve sounded especially excited. Yes, I assured her on both counts, provided the pro-offered exclusive didn't turn out to be refried leftovers from so many talentless tables. I don't get it, said Ms. Cleve, no longer effervescent. And I said, 
You got to get her to talk some fresh talk. And she said, precisely what I plan on doing. And I said, okay, lay a couple on me. Ms. Cleve hesitated. Then she tossed me three questions, all toothless. Why don't you ask her about her drug program? I suggested Rachel, for one, seems convinced that Bev is whatever she is solely on account of the steroids that she allegedly takes in mass quantities. Ms. Cleve caught her breath. Shit, she squealed. That's a sensitive question. She promised to call again after she made contact with the subject of her proposed exclusive. She didn't. Call back, that is. But Steve Weinberger did. Several days later, I'd seen him in a Las Vegas contest. He seemed the quiet sort, yet someone had the need to warn me that Steve's 240 pounds was nearly all gristle, that he made his living as a truck driver for the New York Post. I formed the impression that Steve Weinberger was not necessarily an unmodifiable peacenik. Yes, and now in tones reminiscent of Michael Corleone's after-brother Sonny's sudden bloody demise, Steve was letting me know that he perused my piece entitled This Pussycat Growls, where in the outspoken Ms. Rachel McLish offered angles on the physique of Ms. Francis not calculated to enhance its market value. And was most eager to introduce me to the real Bev, to whom, incidentally, he'd recently bethrowed himself. Well, come on down, I crowed, reckless as ever. Now, when you do what I do for a living, life can sometimes be downright perilous. From time to time, you'll find yourself engaged in the intellectual exchanges with outrageously muscled gentlemen who pride themselves on their unshakable conviction that dictionary is merely another word for doorstop. Oh, but there are compensations. More often than you think, one gets to hug some of the finest flesh in our business, and other than baby-oiled wrappings. There's the ever-delightsome Miss McLish, always in makeup heavy enough to buckle the knees of your sturdiest pack mule. A heady mix of confounding contradictions, bodybuilding's answer to Alexis Carrington has never once sashayed up the steps of flex and anything other than what would set even an aging Baptist president lusting in his born-again heart. Count on it, all the splits in Albert Beckles would not match the slits in one McLish skirt. Hallelujah. Then there's a nature girl, Corey Everson, not necessarily voguish, still country even after her coronation. Yes, but you'd have to rise with the roosters to catch this Miss Olympia and anything that would make her seem big. Precisely the opposite of Corey Karina are Kay Baxter and Tegan Cleve, who insist on letting it all hang out in all its muscular detail, which may or may not have led up to the affair between the last-mentioned lady and some virgin cop that climaxed outside an Orange County public convenience, the couple on their knees and interlocked in a shocking and quite possibly illegal posture. Tegan swears she'll sue, and I say, well, good for her. Forever conscious of their public image, bodybuilding's leading ladies all account themselves to suit the particular impression they wish to convey to their fawning followers and to the hyper-vendors who fuel the fans' fantasies. The arresting exception is Ms. Francis, who suits herself to suit her pleasure, first and last. The morning she and her fiancé visited me at Flex, she wore a plaid shirt with long sleeves, generic jeans, and running shoes by Adidas, with just one piece of jewelry, her engagement ring. The face that she showed me was all her own, untanned, unadorned. There had been no attempt on her part to disguise the blemishes around her chin. She appeared at ease, happy, in love with the huge man at her side, whose hands intertwined her own. Something in her soft blue eyes, something strong, feminine, and irresistible, not the least bit challenging. Yes, something unconsciously seductive seemed to say, yes, I am the Bev Francis about whom much has been said, 
part true, part conjecture, take me as you find me, or let me be. The world's strongest woman turns out at first blush to be almost naive, innocent, trusting, exactly like Macho Man's ideal woman, which is to say ripe for the taking. So straight away, the Inquisitor goes for their jugular. Rachel says you're the result of powerlifting and steroids. What do you say to that? The Inquisitor locked in on her eyes, watchful for any telltale flicker. There was none. When she spoke, her voice was surprisingly female and fearless. The Inquisitor had expected a sound commensurate with her wide, thick shoulders. That is to say, a voice harsh and deep and manly. After all, no woman he'd ever encountered was as Bev Francis appeared even in street clothes. Rachel's been around for some time, she said, as if she were acknowledging that the sky is blue. She's represented her sport in a terrific way. She has a beautiful body, but I'm showing something different, a more muscular body. I'm bodybuilding a few stages above Rachel, but still bodybuilding you. Her fiancé joined in. Maybe Rachel's been living in the twilight zone. Doesn't she realize the sport has come a long way since her first Miss Olympia contest? Bev's the only woman bodybuilder who's been tested for steroid use, and she's always come out clean. It was a lady's turn again. I'll bet I'm also the only female bodybuilder to have subjected herself to a gender test. None of the women who criticize me, who say I look like a man, has undergone a sex test. I'm as much a woman as Rachel is. It's just that she hasn't trained as hard as I have. She noted that Rachel had told a reporter she wanted to be a model for other women. That's not my ambition, said Francis. I simply want to show other women that my potential, that it's possible to build a body like mine, if they so desire. What I'm saying is this. No one should permit society to dictate what she may or may not do with her body. If a woman has the genetic potential to be big, strong, and muscular, she shouldn't allow another person's concept of femininity to hold her back. I certainly won't. Ms. Bev Francis stumbled onto the world of weights quite by accident. Earlier, she'd been a student at the Academy of Ballet in her native Melbourne, Australia. She quit after it became obvious that her physique weighed heavily against her chances of ever becoming a prima ballerina. At 18, she met Franz Stample, famous coach of Roger Bannister, who broke the four-minute mile. A staunch supporter of women's rights since the 20s, he campaigned in his native Austria for legal abortion, Stample helped Francis discover self-confidence. He also encouraged her to train in several sports. Before long, she was setting shot put records. She ran the 100 meters in 11.5, which she says isn't bad. Then she badly injured a hamstring. Track and field had to be abandoned, at least temporarily. So Francis limped behind her coach into the gym. Right away, she says, I fell in love with weightlifting. I really enjoyed watching my poundages go up and up and up. One day, someone phoned to say the newly formed Powerlifting Association of Melbourne was contemplating a contest for women. Bev entered and won. In 1980, at which time powerlifting was an international sport, Bev competed in the first World Powerlifting Championships and dominated the event. Indeed, she has never known defeat as a powerlifter. The first time someone suggested to Bev Francis that she was being considered for a starring role in a movie, she thought it was all a silly joke. The message was contained in the telegram from one Wayne D'Amelia of Queens, USA. Francis was to call George Butler at his New York number. Instead, she called D'Amelia. Collect. He informed her that Butler was planning a movie centered on a women's physique contest and wanted her, a world-class powerlifter, for one of the lead parts, if she was interested. On March 1st, 1983, Bev Francis took a long-distance phone call from Butler himself. He said he was anxious to sign her up. So anxious, in fact, that the minute he was through talking, he'd be on his way to Melbourne. 
He was true to his word. He spent five days with Doug Francis just getting to know her, trying to make certain she was what he needed. He watched open mouth as his prospective star squatted with over 400 pounds and bench press with 300 for reps. Finally, Butler realized that while Francis had the background, the presence, and the will to do whatever was required of her, she did not have a bodybuilder's physique. And what Butler wanted most of all was a physique that would shock the world. Oh, but Butler had a plan. But first things first, he returned to America only to revisit Melbourne a few weeks later, this time with the camera crew that followed Francis for days. They filmed her on the track, at the gym, with her family, with her coach, and then Butler informed her that he'd made special arrangements for her to train in the U.S. in preparation for the 83 Caesars Cup that already had attracted the likes of Rachel McLish, Carla Dunlap, Shelley Gruel, and Chris Alexander. Did the competition scare Francis? Not really, she told me. I'd seen their pictures, and frankly, I thought I had more muscle than they showed, even though I wasn't quite as defined. I'd never done serious bodybuilding, not for contests, and certainly I'd never dieted with cuts in mind. But I was confident I could do anything that others had done. The whole movie thing happened at just the right time. Well, with my torn hamstring, I really had nothing better to do. Pumping Iron 2 gave me the perfect excuse to forget about athletics for a while. She came to Santa Monica, California in August 83 while on vacation from the University of Melbourne. Butler had arranged a meeting with former Mr. Olympia winner Frank Zane, who would assess the Australians' chances in the upcoming Caesars Cup. As Francis recalls, I had on a pair of swimming baggies. They weren't exactly flattering, and since I'd just come out of a Melbourne winter, I was as white as a sheet. I was anything but cut, even though I'd started dieting. Frank took a look at me and, well, you know how hard he is to read. Anyway, he said, you seem to have everything, the muscle's all there, but I really don't know how the judges will take you. Then there's the question of time. The contest is in November. He gave me some advice on stage presentation, and that was it. She visited World Gym a few blocks from Zane's Santa Monica residence with the film crew while Rachel McGlish was taking a workout. No one recognized Francis in her cap and other disguise. Rachel, like nearly everyone else, assumed she was a member of the camera crew. I got the impression that Rachel doesn't train really hard, says Francis, not nearly as hard as I do. But she was impressive. I doubt she ever gets fat. Then again, I couldn't properly assess her physique. As usual, Rachel was all covered up in leg warmers and things. Nevertheless, Francis saw enough to come away convinced that Rachel was not to be taken lightly. She had a certain allure that, while not necessarily synonymous with bodybuilding as the Australians understood it, was captivating. It would be up to the Vegas judges to decide who best represented the sport of women's bodybuilding. Bev Francis returned to Melbourne only to retrace her steps five weeks later. This time she ended up in New York, where, in accordance with Butler's arrangements, she would prepare for the Caesars Cup under the direction of former Mr. America, Steve Mihalik. The first thing he did was put me on a strict diet, Francis recalls. He knew that thanks to my powerlifting, I already had the muscle. The plan was to strip away the excess fat. Red meat was out, as were all dairy products. I was allowed no alcohol and very little salt. In the morning, I'd have some oatmeal cooked in water and some fruit. Later in the day, I ate only protein, egg whites, tuna, or some other low-fat fish that had been grilled. Sometimes I had chicken. I had my last meal around 8 p.m. I ate about six meals daily, all quite small. Training under Mihalik was murder, Francis admits, but she never complained. For years, she traveled the roughest routes to her athletic achievements. Coach Stamfield was no coat, was no slouch when it came to meting out punishment. 
What made training under Steve especially hard, says Francis, was the pace. He allowed me very little rest between sets. Sometimes I came close to tears, but I was determined to take anything he dished out. Mihalik's training paid off. Francis arrived in Vegas with more muscle than was evident among several top physique men who attended the Caesars Cup. Several of the Caesars Cup contenders, including Rachel McLish, openly admitted that it was pointless comparing their physiques with that of Doug Francis. Never before had a woman displayed such biceps, deltoids, and traps. Bev's legs resembled Frank Zane's. But it was one thing to drag the old IFBB horses to the river. Making them drink was an altogether different proposition. As we've already noted, the best Francis could do in Vegas was eighth place, by her measure, the price she paid for forcing the judges to contemplate new horizons. Bev Francis' sexuality has attracted far more attention than her muscles. The ensuing controversy was precisely what George Butler had banked on from the start. Thanks to Bev Francis, Pumping Iron 2 would shock the world. Throughout the Caesars Cup weekend, Butler kept his camera crew busy. Every inappropriately raised eyebrow, every tiny faux pas, every jet lag nod, every judicial gaffe was painstakingly filmed up close with the unconsidered, unconditional blessing of the IFBB. Kindness had never been so callously repaid. On the same day that Pumping Iron 2 played at New York's 57th Street Playhouse before an invited feminist audience, Newsweek carried a special feature entitled The New Flex Appeal, wherein Bev Francis was described as, quote, a young athlete who will probably revolutionize women's bodybuilding, unquote. Several other reviews by writers who had earlier attended industry screenings of Butler's movie boldly suggested that its Aussie star might be a latter-day Joan of Arc. Rachel McLish, on the other hand, was bodybuilding's reigning bitch queen. Only the IFBB may have suffered worse at the editing hands of George Butler. Of course, the feminists embraced Miss Francis. She attended the New York opening in flamingo pink sweats, her face unpainted, hair windswept. Photographers hardly noticed her sneaking into the theater with her fiancé. Oh, but Rachel, you couldn't have missed her. With scant encouragement, the born-again Christian raised her slinky evening gown way up to heaven, high enough to afford panting paparazzi peepers a hundred pops at what must surely be among the world's most photographed gams, nut brown and bare, from rounded cheek to pointed painted toe. Shortly after midnight, at the celebration party that followed the premiere, Rachel, Chris Alexander, Mario Celine, Lydia Chang, and a newly reupholstered Carla Dunlap flashed in the flesh for a room full of gold-chained, rotund gentlemen with fat cigars and late-night, libiding ladies. Bev Francis seemed content to display other talents. Still in her pink attire, she squatted several times with the combined weight of writer George Plimpton and the first lady of feminism, Gloria Steinem, to sustain applause. Earlier, Ms. Steinem had congratulated George Butler, whose new movie has apparently convinced her that anything men can do, Bev Francis can quite possibly do better. June 1985, the lobby of New York's Vista International Hotel. Bev Francis and her husband-to-be are waiting to bring me up to date on their affairs. Several hours earlier, maybe around 1 a.m., I had awoken suddenly from a deep sleep with Francis on my mind. Wow, I shouted. Rick Wayne, I think you've done it. By gosh, I really do. I dialed the number of a Manhattan hotel. A narcoleptic voice answered. Who do you want? Quick, I said. Give me Mike Nevue. All day long, he'd been photographing Al Beckles, Rich Gaspari, and Mike Christian, who'd presented their winning displays the previous evening in Wayne D'Amelio's seventh night of the champions. The poor slob had to be bone-tired. 
But heck, when you're hot, you're hot. And just then, your man was sizzling. Who is this? asked Duval. It's nearly 2 a.m. Never mind the time check, I said. Can you do an emergency session? I give you my word, it'll be your hottest cover yet. It'll turn John Balick a deeper shade of Blyle. Canny me, I know precisely the location of Neville's soul. Who are you planning to shoot at this ungodly hour? Dracula? Nouveau was still bent on getting back to sleep. I paused before cluing him in. The phone suddenly died. For one split second, I thought Nouveau had hung up, but he found his voice. You're kidding. I wasn't, of course. We agreed to rendezvous at a nearby gym. All I had to do now was convince my model. You got to be putting me on, said Steve Weinberger after I let him in on my plan. His fiance laughed and laughed, but finally she agreed to play. She figured it might be a lark. She promised to call back and did one hour later. She'd actually acquired a lacy underthing with some assistance from Albert Beckel's ever-loving Lisa Clark. Moreover, Lisa had volunteered her services as a makeup artist for the occasion. Action time. Of course, I did not attend the photo shoot. It was good enough that I'd come up with the idea. I had every confidence that Mike Nevy would bring it to life. Yes, and now at 8 p.m. in the lobby of the Vista International, Bev Francis is having the time of her life reliving her one-night stand as a pumped-up Madonna. No one will recognize me in that McDish war paint and the Fredericks of Hollywood thingamajig, she squeals mischievously. And I say, which is exactly the point, my dear. Now, can we talk? And she says, go ahead, shoot. What about this year's Miss Olympia? Will we be seeing you in action? She shrugged. A look of exasperation came into her eyes. I'm awaiting an answer on that very question from the IFBB. In 1984, she received a letter from the Executive Council notifying her that her application had been received too late, but that come 85, she'd be free to compete in all the IFBB's pro shows. This year I wrote early, said Bev, but so far no word. I guess I better write another letter or maybe call Ben Weeder. Watching Steve Weinberger from the corner of my eye, I said, let's talk about sex. Must we, asked Bev Francis. Well, I said, the just published issue of Ms. Magazine paints you as the new woman. And the New York Daily News, in its who's hot, who's not list, features you as being altogether blistering. Do you see yourself as a new symbol of sexiness? Please don't get me mixed up with Carla Dunlap. I've never set myself up as anything. I just do what comes naturally. She said she had come into bodybuilding for reasons similar to those that had taken her into athletics. She had the feeling that she could do whatever she put her mind to, running, shot putting, powerlifting, or bodybuilding. She never tried to prove anything to anyone other than herself. If Pumping Iron 2 had made her a feminist cause celebre, well, that couldn't be blamed on her. She wasn't the first disappointed contender in a physique contest and wouldn't be the last. She held no grudges against the IFBB. Indeed, she'd written to Ben Weider to congratulate the IFBB president on his decision to begin drug tests at the 85 Miss Olympia contest. I really can't understand why American women think they have to be sexy to all men, said Francis. Men have such varied tastes in everything, from clothes to sex. I am satisfied with being sexy for just one man. Steve likes me as I am, and that's fine by me. On the other hand, she'd recently had a nose job. Would breast implants be next? I wanted to know. She laughed. Not a chance. What he, Steve, sees is what he gets. Not an inch more. No boob job for this lady. Her fiancé appeared crestfallen. He wrapped a large right arm around her shoulders and feigned a deep soul. But, but, darling, you promised we'd discuss it further. Oh, yes, I know, she purred. McDish pouted in place. And we will. 
But afterward, the answer will still be no. On June 2nd, Bev Francis squatted 475 pounds, benched 303, and deadlifted 470 to once again win the World Powerlifting Championships in Toronto. My final question. At the 85 Night of the Champions, promoter Wayne D'Amelia announced that you and Rachel were bosom buddies and that she would be a maid of honor at your upcoming wedding. Is that true? The look on Steve Weinberger's face froze my blood. Bev just smiled her enigmatic Aussie smile. Then she said, let's just say for the record that Wayne was simply having fun. Steve grabbed her throat in a playful fashion of a lion with its cub. Now about those implants, he pretended to shake the life out of her. Bev played right along. All right, all right, she howled. And if it means that much to you, I'll be Dolly Parton. So now we wait. And there is another short article here along with that one. Let me find it. And it is about Steve Mihalik and Steve Weinberger's thoughts on Steve Mihalik, which he talked about in our interview. And it's called The Steve Wars. I fully support the IFBB, said Steve Mihalik, who must not be confused with Steve Weinberger, the soon-to-be husband of the world's strongest woman, Bev Francis. Yes, said Steve Mihalik, a former Mr. America and the well-known proprietor of the even better-known Mr. America gym in Brooklyn, New York. A champion female bodybuilder should be well-built, but she's also got to have feminine lines. The IFBB is right. Femininity makes all the difference between men and women. Now I can just hear you saying, as you grab a fistful of your own hair, no shit, Dick Tracy. Wasn't that Steve Mihalik in Pumping Iron 2? Wasn't he the character who got behind Bev Francis and stayed with her all the way to the Caesars Cup through the somewhat predictable finish? Wasn't that Mihalik who made Bev Francis do set after giant set of the most brutal, sadistic exercises you ever saw outside a chamber of horrors? Yes, that was Steve Mihalik, the guy who kicked up a holy storm over the IFBB's unwritten femininity clause. But then so did the other Steve who lives deep in the heart of Francis. Shortly after he competed jury duty at the Night of the Champions, I cornered Steve Mihalik at the Beacon Theater in New York. What's this I hear about your having a change of heart where Bev's physique is concerned, I asked. No change of heart, he said. I'm all for the femininity clause, and Bev's body doesn't quite fit my idea of femininity. Never did, never will. So what was all that hot air in the movie about Bev's having been shafted? Acting, man, just acting, Steve assured me. I was paid to perform, and I delivered. A great performance, too, if you ask me. In fact, everything I did in that movie was an act. It had nothing to do with my reality. Again, you're saying, no shit, Dick Tracy. What does the other Steve have to say about that? Was he also acting for George Butler's money? No way, says Steve Weinberger. I can't believe he said that. The only thing that wasn't quite as it happened in real life was that that was fake, was that scene at Kennedy Airport when Bev arrived here from Australia. Here's what actually happened. Wayne D'Amelia said to me, hey, you want to be in the movie? I said, sure, sounds good. You know, I know nothing, you know. And he says, well, there's this girl coming from Australia. Her name's Bev Francis. And all you got to do is meet her and take her around, you know, like be her escort. So, yeah, I figure I'll be in the movie. It sounds like fun. Definitely. So Wayne describes Bev Francis to me. He says, this monster is coming. She's a gorilla. I thought I was going to meet this thing that was seven foot five and 800 pounds and it's going to come growling at me. You know, that's what I thought, you know, like I have nothing to lose. Weinberger says he went to the Kennedy with Wayne and Karen D'Amelio. Wayne and I stayed in the car while Clarky, Karen, went in to meet Bev, Weinberger recalled. The two of them came out after a while and I'm watching, you know, Bev was wearing denim pants, a dungaree jacket. She was short. 
And I was thinking, shit, that's a gorilla? The following evening, Weinberger had his first view of the Francis physique. We were at Wayne's house. Bev came out in trunks, and hey, my jaw dropped. Her effing delts were out there, as was everything else. May lightning strike me if I'm lying. She was cut. Her upper body was ready. By Weinberger's account, Steve Mihalik entered the picture a few days later. Bev went to train under his direction at his Mr. America gym, and, well, we already know what happened after that. So with all the newspapers carrying on as if some kind of miracle had been worked on Bev, Steve Mihalik, the consummate promoter, decided it was time to offer his services to the world. In a magazine advertisement, he claimed full responsibility for the transformation of Bev Francis from powerlifter to physique champion. And that's when Steve Weinberger decided enough was enough. I mean, Bev could have done it at any basement gym, he told me. Sure, Steve worked with her, but that didn't give him the right to claim her as some student of his. Bev had done some bodybuilding before she ever heard of Steve Mihalik. That may be true, Mihalik agreed. In fact, only the other day I discovered Bev had appeared in a physique show before coming to America. So now I'll say I am responsible for the Bev Francis that America saw for the first time in Las Vegas. I still say he's a phony, says Weinberger. Everything we said in Pumping Iron 2 was legit. Only the airport scene was staged. And that's because no one really knew how Bev and I met. Nobody told me what to say, and nobody told Mihalik he had to say Bev was fantastic or anything. He was supposed to be speaking from the heart, and now he says he wasn't. All right, well, that makes him, in my book, a phony. His fiance is more charitable, she says. The last few weeks before the Caesars Cup were crucial. I wanted somewhere that I could go and train and be able to think of nothing else but the contest. Steve's gym was it. Weinberger added, They brought her here in order to help out the camera crew that would be filming her workouts. She didn't come here because of some supposed Mr. Magic Man who was going to turn her into a goddess. The end. <laughs> and of course, if you heard the interview, you heard Steve talk about Steve Mihalik and his role in the movie Pumping Iron at the beginning of our interview. All right, guys, that's it for another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week with our special anniversary show, our sixth year anniversary show for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. I hope you can join us. Until then, stay safe, train hard, and we'll see you guys next week. All right, take care.